I was told about some of the other talks that preceded me and come after me, and uh, apparently there was a talk recently about Frankenstein and Dracula, and next week there's a talk about sex. <laughs> this is a harder one, right? So make sure this one's about money. Uh, and, um, and, and sort of a hard public policy to a topic to talk about, but certainly a timely one. Uh, but I promise you, we'll kind of get into people's brains and how we think about money uh, and, and, and offer that as kind of a way to think about ourselves as well as the broader public policy implications here today. So this is Whatever Happened to Thrift, Why Americans Don't Save and What to Do About It. So this is a, a talk from a book I published um, about a year ago. And economists for a long time have considered the question of savings and whether people save enough be kind of a stupid question frankly, okay? Um, economists look at people and say people have preferences about money and how much they spend, and if they spend money such that they're in debt up to their eyeballs, well, that's, that's because that's what they wanted to do, okay? And we shouldn't really worry about that as a public policy matter uh, one way or the other because we should allow people to do what they want. But this has gained momentum as a topic in economics just in the last few years because if you ask people, do you think you're saving enough, many people will tell you that they're not that they violate their own preferences over money. They want to be saving more, but they, they find that it's very difficult cognitively and economically for them to do so. There's a study that says about 68% of people say that they're saving too little, and it's, it's a pretty good study. So um, there's been a lot of press recently since the economic downturn that American savings is back. For those of you who follow this topic, and I realize a lot of you may not have followed this topic, but if you have followed it, um, you would, have, you would have found that American savings rate is very low for quite a number of years. In fact, it went down below zero for a while. Um, but recently, since the economic downturn, the papers have trumpeted the fact that people are saving a lot more money. And, um, and I think when you read that kind of thing, you have to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. I want to put this in historical perspective. This is a graph from uh, right before the Great Depression. Um, and I hope those of you in the back can see it, or at least get some sense of this graph about U.S. savings rates. The only time we've been particularly great at savings and probably saved too much was the period right after the Great Depression. And during and after the Great Depression, everybody said, well, the market went down, things are very scary, um, I should save a lot of money. Um, most other periods in U.S. history um, numbers like five, six, sometimes bumping up to 10% or more the norm. The savings rate that we're seeing right now that the newspapers say, wow, this has got, this is big, this is a big savings rate, five or 6% is still what we're seeing in terms of a U.S. savings rate. So it's gone up, but it's gone up from horribly low levels, right? And is about what is on average for, you know, long historical periods in the U.S. So um, it hasn't gone up a whole lot. Uh, we're still down well below the level that many people are going to need uh, for a comfortable retirement for themselves, to save for things like medical emergencies, and to keep us out of some what, what could be some ugly public policy situations. So just wanted to put that in there in case, you're, um, in case you're kind of wondering if this is a problem that's over. For some historical perspective, Americans have never been particularly good at savings. Okay, we just haven't. Asian countries have been good for, at savings for a long time, okay? We're gonna dive into a little, a little bit of why I think that's going on, but we just, I mean, Thomas Jefferson was famously in debt at the time of his death. Lots of people 
from Jefferson's time forward who are quite famous, have been famously in debt as well. And the average American, even an average American that does very well financially, uh, typically does not save a lot of money relative to other developed nations, okay? Buying on payments has been common since World War II. That's a very a key thing to kind of wrap your heads around. And I think it's, it's kind of fundamental to the way Americans think about spending and savings. If you ask someone in a lot of developed countries whether they can afford something, the response you'll get is, do they have the cash to buy that? Okay, they're, they're looking at their money in the bank and they're saying, do I have the cash to buy that? If you ask someone in the US, can you afford a new car? The cognitive uh, calculus that they're doing is, can I afford the payments on a new car? Okay, and that's a very different calculus that you're doing. So the, the idea of having the money in the bank is not what we think of first, often when we think about our ability to afford certain consumer items that we, we, we commonly buy. Um, now, why don't we save very much? I think this is a fairly complicated answer, but has a, a number of, of elements that are pretty interesting, at least to me. One is, money is cheap in the US. What does that mean? That means if you save money in a risk-free account or a very low risk account, you don't get very much return. We all know that, right? Uh, we, you just don't, you, you're probably not getting inflationary levels of, of uh, return if you've got it in a safe account. On the other hand, if you borrow a lot of money or you borrow any money, the rates that we can get in terms of the interest that we pay on that debt are very low relative to what people in other developed countries might be paying on the same debt. When we finance that car and we say, yes, we can afford the payments, we're looking at interest rates that are quite low to finance that debt. In some ways, we're a victim of our own success. The reason that we see interest rates that are very low is because capital flows into the United States from all around the world because people say, look, they're unlikely to have a coup tomorrow, okay? There'll be a radical shift in government. It's a reasonably stable place to put my money relative to where I may be sitting right now. So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna go buy dollar denominated maybe US government debt and hold my money effectively in the United States as a safe haven. Well, when all that money flows into the United States, there's a great demand for debt instruments like US government bonds. And what is true in finance, and I imagine a lot of you know that, when demand for debt instruments goes up, interest rates go down, right? You don't have to offer people as much interest to get them to buy the bonds. So Americans, when we walk out into our own financial marketplace, it's very easy for us to say, well, why not borrow some money? It's so cheap. And by the way, if I save my money, I don't make that much money on that money to begin with. So that regime, that economic regime, which is largely driven by the fact that we've been a broadly a successful country, um, encourages debt, okay? Um, by the way, I, I have to tell you just parenthetically, I, I teach at the Darden School, so I am used to a high level of crowd interaction. I'm a case teacher by nature, okay? So this is a little bit different than what I'm used to. And so if you have a question, just jump up and you know, ask it for me. I'm kind of used to that dynamic. So it's, it's very fine. I'll stop at any point in the presentation uh, to take a question, okay? So interest rates are cheap. Who is buying all this US government debt? Well, it's the countries with the really high savings rates, right? That's who it is, and largely recently it's been China, okay? Japan had been the largest owner of our U.S. government debt for a long time. China has taken the lead on that. At the beginning 
of the uh, decade, around 2000, China would have held about $80 billion in U.S. government debt. Now they hold about $800 billion in U.S. government debt. So that's been a, a large climb up. Why are savings in U.S. government debt related? Maybe this is a point I need to emphasize. The U.S. government, is, uh, we all know, is borrowing a ton of money. In countries like Japan, the government also borrows a lot of money. They have large government deficits as well. But because the savings rate of Japanese society is so high, they largely owe that money to themselves. The domestic audience is purchasing the bonds which are used to finance the debt. So they, the government might owe, but they owe to the person that's standing down the street. Since we do not have a high savings rate in the US, someone has to buy those bonds, and it isn't us okay, recently. So that money flows out, essentially, of the US and is held outside. And let me make it clear. I think in normal economic times, it's perfectly healthy to have these kind of global capital flows. But what we're seeing right now, in my mind, is a fairly disturbing concentration of capital outside of the US in ways that might, uh, might really cause us problems, OK? So uh, the, the big, uh, the, the, you know, the, the biggest pieces of this right now, by far, are Japan and, uh, and China. And China has taken the lead on it. OK, so enumeracy. Here's another problem. You know, I'm not going to go through the little exercise that you see in the paper sometime where we all prove that we're dumb at math, OK? Remember these things we read in the paper? And we read quizzes about people from the US. They don't know where Zimbabwe is. You know, uh, you, know you give them a geography quiz or a math quiz, and they sort of don't do very well. That's all true. Um, but uh, here's a problem with that related to this. Compound interest is not the easiest thing in the world to understand. Right? <coughs> it's not. And that's a simple formulation of it. So if you're sitting there thinking, wow, I can spend money right now, or I can borrow money, and it's pretty cheap, and I can buy the car that I want, or I can put my money in some investment vehicle, I see that interest rate is low, and I don't really understand the value of compound interest, I don't understand how that geometrically expands over time, it really doesn't come home to roost for me, the incentives to save, again, are diminished. So partly it's the cheap interest rates, and partly it's the inability to do math and understand that, uh, yeah, even if you get a low interest rate, you put stuff in over time, this stuff can expand a lot, OK? But I will say those are the economic reasons. There are psychological reasons as well that are really not in the realm of uh, the bailiwick of an economist, OK? But uh, let's dive into those, because I really think they are a part of the problem. Americans are massively overconfident. Psychologists can measure this, OK? Um, there is a literature on, on confidence and how confident we are in the future of our country, how confident we are in the future of ourselves, right, at the individual level, how much money we're going to make, how healthy we're going to be in the future at an individual level. Psychologists can test that, and then they can look at real outcomes in the data, and they can make uh, measurements about how optimistic or pessimistic both in probably an individual, but broadly a society is based on those kind of metrics. All mentally healthy people are overconfident. That's sort of a sobering thought you should all kind of sink into your heads, OK? Uh, two things that are true about mentally healthy individuals. They are overconfident in their own ability, OK? If I had everyone in the room, and I won't for reasons of time, OK? You know, you close your eyes because you don't want to see what everybody else is doing. 
Say, how many of you are relative to anybody else in the room above average drivers? You know, <laughs> 80, 90% of you would raise your hand. You'd say, well, I'm, I'm not one of those idiots out there. There are idiots out there. I'm not one of them. I'm an above average driver, okay? You know, 80% of the population thinks they have above average intelligence. That cannot be true, right? That cannot be true. 80% of the people cannot have above average intelligence. But people that uh, learn to cope psychologically with life, this is just part of a normally healthy, what psychologists tell us, mental process. We just believe that we are better, and we believe we have more control over situations than we do as well. If you, uh, it, 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 there's tests that are very interesting where you have people roll dice, and you ask them about, do you think you can affect the outcome of dice rolls? And most people will kind of dismiss that and say, well, no, I can't really. But then when you bore down on that, Turns out a lot of people think they can a little bit affect. Some people think they can a lot. Some people think they can't at all. But it turns out that's not as big of a group as you think it is, okay? And there's a lot of people kind of in that gray area that think, well, if I concentrate hard enough and I've been living a good life, maybe those snake eyes will come up, okay, when I'm playing at the craps table or you, know, you do things like that. That's sort of broadly prevalent in society. So, and Americans are also at the top of this dimension. So if you think about that, if you really think tomorrow is going to be better than today, and you really think you have a lot of control, more than is realistic about outcomes, why save, right? Why save? Spend money because tomorrow things are going to get better, I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be healthy, and I'll be making more money, and I can save at that point when I'm actually, my ship has come in, all right? So um, any, and I, I, I hate to tell you, I'm not going to dive into why Americans are overconfident, because I'm not sure I know the answer. Any, any comments from the audience about this? Because I'm, I'm actually in learning mode, too. So we can measure it. And along a lot of dimensions, Americans are overconfident. Japanese are not. Japanese are more pessimistic. Okay? Is this an issue of wars on our soil? I'm just, I'm, I'm interested. Yes? Uh, things have gotten better since the country was founded, and they always have been, so why should All right. So just kind of economic progress that we see over time, okay? It's the American dream. Okay. Okay, it's the American dream. Maybe uh, people came here because of that particular dream and they're confident. Okay, so it's a, the immigrant issue, the, the immigrant mentality that's still with us maybe? Yes. Well, we are the world's hyperpower. Yep. makes us singular. All right, so uh, we're, in a, we're, in a, we're in a really good place and we don't worry about things as much because we're very powerful. Yes. Okay. All right, so we don't have as much sense of what goes on outside of our country, and we feel sheltered maybe by two oceans and the power. Okay, uh, I'll be clear, I don't know the answer to the question, right? That's an open-ended question, but one, one thing is clear. If you're massively overconfident and you think that tomorrow's going to be better than today and you have a lot of control, it diminishes your savings, okay? Um, but there are other psychological reasons as well. This is not the only one. Let me see if I can. Memories. Okay, are asymmetric with respect to consumption. So what does that mean? It means, uh, let me sort of give you an example. When you decide, let's use a car example, what kind of car you think you should buy. The natural, or what kind of house you should have, or what kind of clothes you should wear. The natural thing we all do is we look at the people around us that we think are like us. They could be neighbors. They could be people with similar jobs that we have. Right? We look at people around us in what are called our reference group. 
We all carry this around in our head. We don't announce it to everyone. You know, I don't meet you for the first time and say, you know, I'm not very much like you. I'm not going to pay attention to what, you know. We don't announce that. We, 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 it's just, I have no idea whether I'm like you or not, by the way. I'm just using you as an example, okay. Uh, but we, we, we don't socially, that's, you just don't do that, but you carry that around in your head. Okay, so you make these decisions on consumption based on looking out of the world and saying, okay, what are they doing? This would be reasonable for me. Problem is our memory plays tr tricks on us when we do that. If you walk through a, a parking lot and you see, suppose you like Mercedes, you just do, and you see Mercedes, and then you see a number of Subaru Outbacks, which by the way, in the Darden parking lot is the most common car in the Darden parking lot. I've looked, you know, I've, <laughs> it is, okay, Subaru Outback. Um, but suppose you like Mercedes better than Subaru Outbacks. I happen to like Outbacks, but you might like Mercedes. You walk through, and then I ask you, um, how, what percentage of cars in the parking lot do you think are Mercedes? And by the way, what percentage of cars in the parking lot do you think are Subaru Outbacks? Most people's memories will bias towards the more extravagant consumption of the stuff they like. Okay? They're actually, it's not just that they want that. When they're constructing a, a set of things that they think is for reasonable consumption in their mind, their, their, their cognitive abilities are limited in the extent that they're recalling other consumption information, and they do that in a biased way, and it's biased towards things that they really, really like. Now, this happens in all countries, right? It's a human thing. It's not a U.S. thing. But what's the difference in the U.S.? Income concentrations are really high in the U.S. What does the income concentration mean? It means that, and this is absolutely not a political statement, it's just a measurement, okay? that uh, the wealthiest in the, in the U.S. control, th th there's a larger bifurcation in incomes in the U.S. than there is in France, for example. The highs are higher, the lows are lower. You know, you just have a tighter distribution of incomes in places like France. So when I walk around the world, what do I see? I see a much larger spread of consumption choices that I might have. Cars, clothes, houses, it's all over the board. But remember, what's my mind doing? It's grabbing the things that I really like, and it's over-representing them in memory. So when I go out and look for the car, by the way, the car is probably financed that I'm looking at too, right? <laughs> the one that I want. It's probably bought on payments, and it's not as prevalent as I think it is, but what I've seen out there in the world, I'm just going to see more of the extravagant consumption than I would in, like, for example, a place like France. So while that's common, this cognitive bias is common to all human beings, it kind of comes home to roost in Americans more because of the little large disparity we see in consumption options in the world, okay? Um, so um, this is just a summary of that. Americans observe consumption, but they remember what <coughs> consumption they like more than they don't. Income disparities within reference groups are rising. America believe they are falling behind their peers all the time. Um, you can actually survey that. So which credit card do I use, right? That, that's, the, that's the result of that. Which credit card do I, do I put that uh, purchase on? Um, I got plenty more, but any, uh, I'm going through a lot of material. Any, any questions or observations at this point in the presentation on the psychology? or anything? Yes. Have you observed that some of these trends are changing over time, or do you think that the past 75 years Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say there's kind of two effects there if I could separate. One is the, the memory bias that I mentioned, I don't think is changing over time. There's good reasons why our brains kind of work that way, okay, and that we're overconfident and things like that. There's actually evolutionary reasons 
that our brains work that way. However, if you look at cohorts in the U.S., when I mean cohorts, people of various ages in the U.S., it's clear that consumption uh, relative to debt is changing over time. Anybody that remembers the Great Depression, that group is just saves more money by a lot. Okay? Why? Because they know things can get very bad. Now, one thing we have seen recently, okay, is that once you get the Depression-era generation, and then you look at the next group of 10 years, next group of 10 years, I'm saying when they were born, right? Savings rates go down, down, down. Debt rates go up, up, up. This last little group of the 20-somethings, we have some preliminary evidence that that thing is, is headed back up. It's preliminary, okay? The other data is very uh, good, and it means that we have large samples on the other data. We don't have large samples on this, so I'm not as confident with that, uh, but there, there might be a little, think about it as a check mark, right? Kind of inverted, it's down, 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 down since the Great Depression, and then it's up. I think there are some other issues at play with a very young generation, and, and I'll just throw this out there, although it's not the point of my talk. A lot of 20-somethings get out with a lot of student loan debt. So I think the psychology of that is kind of much more so than someone that graduated 20 years ago. So I think the psychology of student loan debt among some fairly large groups is, uh, is driving some of this savings behavior. Okay, yes? Um, how is it, have you ever looked at how the media and communications over the generational gaps tends to uh, encourage that thought process of where we belong and what we should be having? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, certainly uh, marketing and advertising impact things, but I, I will tell you, you know, uh, uh, since the turn of the century, Veblen, I mean, there's been, there's been invective against the consumer society in, in the 19th century, right? Around the times of Carnegie and um, their books written like The Consumer Society, which you think may came out last week, but came out, you know, in the 1870s and 1880s. So um, that's been around. I think what the difference is, is that marketing communications has a much more sophisticated ability to target you in the messages that you might really be interested in. And I do think that is encouraging buying, particularly um, more uh, of luxury items. I mean, in one sense, if you buy Cheerios versus uh, Frosted Flakes or, you know, who cares? I mean, you might care for health reasons, right? But for savings reasons, well, one costs this, one costs that, there's no real net effect. But if, if people were buying more of Tiffany, that can't afford Tiffany because of that, then that's a separate issue. And I would, I would propose that probably is happening, although the data on that is, um, that's a hard thing to test. Yeah. You know, if you really get uh, increases in extravagant consumption. Yeah. Well, my sense is that um, the prior generations, they always recognized that it existed. Like, mm -hmm. oh, we had the Carnegie's or Rockefeller's. Yeah. They were really uh, set to be on a different planet. Mm -hmm. But now we've seen with the, with the television, the radio, mm -hmm. that driven, like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I agree. I agree. That this, it, it, the marketing has an impact. No doubt about it. Um, I'll keep rolling here. Um, huge business and public policy implications with this problem. What are they? Government deficit is financed by foreign savings. That's just a factual statement right now, and it's getting worse, right? We're going to have another trillion dollar deficit, and we don't have the domestic savings rates to soak that deficit up. So that's money that largely is going to be held outside of the U.S. Willingness to hold dollars sensitive to political conditions. In other words, if you have a lot of debt that's held outside of the U.S., they could decide to unload that debt. They could. What would happen if that happened? 
you'd get a sudden dollar crash or interest rate spikes. If all those bonds get floated out on the market all at once, what you'd have is a very big interest rate spike, and you could have recession or depression based on that. Th that's a bigger uh, risk now than it was 10 years ago, even though the savings rate was bad 10 years ago. So if you have all that money now, let me, let me sort of be fair to the other. There, there's kind of a couple arguments here. If you talk to economists about this, they will tell you, for example, China is unlikely to unload all those bonds into the market at the same time because if they do that, they're going to lose a lot of money too. Okay? If they try to sell all that stuff at once, the price of bonds will go down, interest rates will go up. As the price of bonds goes down, the Chinese will, will lose a lot of money. So they're going to be unhappy about doing that and unlikely to do that. I will just say, you know, we have to temper this economics with our view of, of history as well. I think they are unlikely to dump all that stuff at once, but there are situations where they might. Okay, um, and by the way, I, I'm using China because it's an outstanding example of, of a rapid draw up in the concentration of our debt outside the U.S. There are plenty of other people that hold big chunks, chunks of our debt. Okay, so we, we are almost like uh, we are beholden to countries for our energy, and that causes political problems for us sometimes. I think, I think most people would agree with that. Um, this can cause us political problems as well. Um, because we have to, uh, let me give you one example, China, okay. Um, the U.S. government each year has to certify that China doesn't manipulate its currency. It does. 100, out of 100 economists will tell you, it does manipulate its currency, okay. It, it, it does, but we have to certify that every year. Why? And, and because if we don't certify it, then we have to impose some, you know, trade, there's some, some trade sanctions that go along with that. Nobody wants to do that. I'm not suggesting we do trade sanctions, but the government has to take that policy, look at it and say, here's the truth, but we're not going to say it. We're not going to say it. Why? Because somebody's holding $800 billion of our debt. And if they dump some of that out on the market, we're going to be left holding the bag when that happens. So it absolutely already has big political implications. Okay? So that's the problem. I think it has big public policy implications. Solving it is complicated. Okay? Um, but it really comes down to how we change this type of behavior. Okay. Well, I think there are uh, public policy things that we can do, but I also think there are things that individual business, I'm a business professor, right? I'm, uh, I think there are things individual businesses can do as well to, to help uh, solve this problem. And usually when I talk about this kind of stuff, I'm talking uh, with businesses, uh, not, not uh, public policy types. Occasionally I do talk with public policy uh, professionals, but uh, a lot of it has to do with the psychology of money. Okay, so choice under conflict, time to paint your house. So I remember, the la think about the last time you painted your house. And you thought, well, I want to paint the room, but maybe I had to do beige. Well, how many different colors of beige are there? Or gray, or blue. Well, you went and you got those paint chips, right? And you held them up to the wall, and you tried to figure out what color beige you wanted, and there was like 100 different colors of beige. And what you did is you probably delayed your choice because there were so many things for you to consider. Um, well, that's not that big a deal, but in the mutual fund market, okay, there's over 10,000 actively traded mutual funds, massive amounts of real-time financial data. You can sit there all morning and drink your coffee and look at the web pages and look at all, you know, the patterns and the charts coming in, and you can try to figure out what to do. And largely, people do have to figure out what to do right now because you know, not so long ago, companies took care of this for you with defined benefit pension plans, but in what amounts to a very large shift in this, and it's really a shift from 
risks associated with a company to the individual, most of us have to do this kind of stuff on our own, right? Maybe within some company uh, sponsored plan, but we have to make asset allocation decisions on our own. Um, well, people find that very difficult. And when you throw lots of choices at them, they have no idea what to do. And often what they do is delay. The problem with delaying is the default for a lot of these retirement plans, if you delay, is to put it in cash. Now, I'd have liked to have had it all in cash over the last couple years, frankly. <laughs> that would not have been a bad outcome. But over long periods of time, having all your retirement money sitting in cash, which a disturbing number of people, even at the University of Virginia do, yes, I've looked at that data, okay, um, is, not a good, is not a good outcome. People will tend to uh, not, they not keep up with inflation and their earning power will erode over time as they, uh, as they approach retirement. So all these choices and all these choices, there's a great paper called The Dark Side of Choice. And economists, and I do too, I think, you know, a lot of markets, more choice is good. It turns out in some of these markets that more choice paralyzes us and we don't know what to do. And because we don't know what to do, it costs us a lot of money. Uh, so what can a business person do? They can keep things simple, okay? Uh, if you, the reason, there's a reason there's a lot of these uh, options in the retirement plans that we look at. For those of you who are familiar with this and you've got the stack of prospectuses or you've seen this kind of stuff lately, you realize there's tons you need to look at. There are reasons. Part of them is legal. The other part is marketing. Okay, I teach marketing. A lot of those companies, they want to get as many of their products into that retirement plan as they can because if you're buying from Fidelity and they've got a ton of products, right, you're probably not buying from Vanguard and that's a competitor. So what do they do? They load up those plans with lots of choices and many more choices than is really necessary for good asset allocation and uh, what happens is people are worse off for it. So, um, you know, the best thing a business person can do in that situation is operate under a little bit of a paternalistic instinct and that means give them enough options to diversify their portfolio, maybe an annuity option, an equity option, a bond option, a foreign option, a couple other options, but you don't need much more than that, and then resist the temptation to dump all that stuff into the account, okay? Um, and uh, based on some new laws that are out there, companies can also reset defaults on these plans. I'll go through this kind of quickly. Um, so that it doesn't all go into cash, it could go into something like a life cycle fund, which adjusts over the uh, period of someone's lifetime. It's very hard. It used to be they did it all to cash because they were afraid of getting sued. Now it's harder to get sued. Okay. Um, the other problem with these accounts, and the, the reason I focus in on this in the talk, is because to the extent that Americans save it all, this is typically where they save their money. These tax-deferred retirement accounts, these are a store of wealth for a lot of people. Um, and they're good vehicles overall, but, uh, but there are problems with it. And when there are problems with those vehicles, those are the things that end up costing people a lot of money. It's not whether they're saving this much at the credit union or this much at the bank. You know, th those aren't the large problems. What's another problem with these accounts? Well, the mind is a strange place, okay? And we, when we're solving any kind of mathematical problems, one of the ways we solve it is we grab the most um, accessible piece of information in our head, maybe the last number we thought about in order to try to grab the problems. There's wonderful research in this, okay? Um, it turns out we anchor on all kinds of crazy things. If your name is Dennis, any Dennis in the room? Dennis? You're more likely to become a dentist. <laughs> uh, if your name is Georgiana, you're more likely to move to Georgia. 
Okay, uh, Louis is more likely to move to St. Louis. Laurie is more likely to become a lawyer. Okay, we anchor it because that's, it's clear, it's, it's in our head, it's right in the front of our brain at all times. So when we solve complicated problems, big life decisions, what do we do? I know it sounds insane, okay? But we grab the information that's most readily available us to do that. And this is another situation where that happens, okay? If a company contributes 3% to a defined contribution retirement plan, that'd be good at this point. A lot of companies have cut back on this, okay? And you ask people, well, how much do you think you need to save into this to retire? People will say, mm, about 5%. If a company contributes 5% to this, and you ask people, how much do you think you need to save? About 7%. What are they doing? What's the heuristic? Anchoring. Anchoring, anchoring plus a little more. They have no idea. No, no idea. They have not done the math, right? So what they knew is they probably need to save a little bit more. So they'll just take the company contribution, add a little bit of it, and say, well, that's how much I need to save. Okay, a substantial portion of workers, up to half in some studies, use the default allocation and uh, don't and contribute just a little bit more than their employer, no matter how much their employer contributes to the retirement plan. So they're clearly not doing things in an optimal way. Uh, poor workers are, are high, more highly risk at this. This is my little foray into you know, talking about uh, poor workers, but uh, they're highly subject to anchoring and default effects. So if, you get a, if you get a factory with a, lo a lot of blue collar workers that don't know much about finance, let me tell you what they're going to do. Um, they are going to uh, take whatever default allocation the company offers them, and that's what they're going to do, because they're not going to go through the asset allocation decision. Okay, and default effects are probably going to put in whatever their employer is putting in, plus a little bit more, and, and that's it, no matter what their employer is putting in. Okay, so they're not going to solve the problem. Also, the problem is highly averse to equities. So, <clears throat> people in the lower third of income in the U.S. hate equities, on average. Why? They're viewed as scary. Lately, they have been scary, right? Okay, they're viewed as scary, and they're seen as an investment for rich people. It, it, it actually, good financial advice is no matter where you are on the income spectrum, you should hold some equities in your portfolio, but people in the lower third, the income distribution, by and large, do not believe that. Okay, so over time, they tend to, uh, poor workers tend to stay poor in retirement because they don't have adequate exposure to those markets over a long period of time. And there's no real way to do that. Social Security is obviously a government indexed annuity, uh, an, an annuity, and they don't, they don't have they don't have, uh, sometimes they just don't have access to things like a 401k, but even if they do have access to 401k, they're not going to do that very well. Okay, so what do we need to do in this situation? We need to loosen restrictions on um, investment advice at the workplace. They've been loosened somewhat over the last few years, but probably not nearly as much. To the extent anybody gets good financial advice, you know what they do? They get at the workplace. You know, I came here to UVA. Um, I went to a financial planning seminar. Well, I went to an initiation seminar. When they set things up at your company, right, they sit you in a room and they say, here's your benefit plan. And I'm a nightmare in these situations, right? They have me in there, because they study this, right? So, and, and people were asking the, the person questions at the front of the room saying, well, you know, should I, should I do an, an allocation that's different than all cash, which was the default? And the person in front of the room would say, well, it depends on your financial circumstances. That would be the response. That is obviously true. Okay, um, 
And, but it was a response to someone that was just clearly afraid of being sued, right? There was no actual information that was passing hands at that point. Even though that was the place where people could have gotten very good information that would have had very large economic consequences for them, particularly if they stayed at the University of Virginia for a while. So I started answering questions. They got mad at me, and <laughs> I started. But I figured I'd take the risk, right? They're probably at a higher risk being sued than I am, so on that. Um, but uh, we need to loosen those up because most people don't have professional financial planners. That's not going to happen anytime soon where everybody has their personal you know, financial planner. To the extent people do this well, they're going to get it in the workplace. Okay? Are there direct public policy measures as well? Okay? Let me foray into the political sphere just for the last little bit. Yes. Okay? The government could stop extorting, uh, exhorting people to spend money. Patriotic debt. This irritates me, okay? Um, I really do not like, uh, uh, we have a huge problem with savings. We have stimulus checks that go out, and the government's sitting there saying spend, 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 get, get the economy back and rolling. That is absolutely true in the short term, but people spent more money, uh, with, you know, the economy would, would bump up again. Uh, but we are just kicking a horrible problem down the road a little bit farther, and it would simply get worse, right? Um, I, I think it is completely irresponsible for the government to exhort people to spend, spend, spend at this point. We've had that from Republican administrations. We've had it from Democratic administrations. It, it happens across the political spectrum. It is short-term thinking on the, effect on the part of politicians who wish to be reelected, okay, rather than good economic policy. Okay, right now, we should save more money. Okay? And yes, that will dampen economic recovery. Uh, but we will be better off for it, and when the economic recovery does come, it will be robust, it will be less fragile, okay? And the next little downturn in the housing market that occurs will not freak everybody out and send people running for the exits, which happened this time precisely because people didn't have the savings, the cushion of savings, um, there to help them when things turned south. They had no equity in their home, they'd been borrowing against it, so when the price went down they were underwater, they didn't have the savings sitting in their bank account. That's why things unraveled as quickly as they did. So we need to set that firm foundation for good economic growth. And finally, we could tax things we want less of instead of things we want more of. We'd like more income. That doesn't hurt anybody, okay? What we could use is less consumption, particularly on, on big ticket luxury items. There's an argument to be made for energy as well. We could probably use less of that. You know what? Taxes are going up. Well, there's a big prediction here. Okay, does anybody disagree with that? <laughs> 10 years, taxes will be higher than they are now. Okay, there's just, I can't imagine another way the world's going to work with the deficits we're running. So if taxes are going to go up, I think, uh, and I'm in good company on this one. This is a standard sort of economic, uh, this is a mainstream economic thought, not a wacko one, okay? We would be uh, much better off implementing consumption taxes on certain items than we would uh, whole-scale raising income taxes. Why? Income taxes incent consumption and disincent savings. Consumption taxes disincent consumption and incent savings on which you do not have to pay taxes. This is a comp, I'm not suggesting this is easy, um, but there are, there are plenty of people who study this and there are ways to implement it. I don't think we're going to wholesale uh, overthrow the income tax. That's probably not going to happen in any of our lifetimes. Uh, but uh, to the extent that you're generating more money, I think this is a big enough problem, in addition to things like energy problems, we'd be better off taxing those sorts of things and generating a revenue that way. Okay? 
Um, and I'm, I'm happy to uh, uh, talk about any questions you have, but I think this is a problem that needs both a private sector and a public policy attention, okay? So my focus mostly is on business people, but I'm uh, happy to take public policy questions as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's, a, that's an interesting point and a good one. Um, I think um, my, my view of this would be sort of about like, uh, I hate to associate myself with Warren Buffett because he's a lot smarter about investment than I am. Um, but my views would be largely the same as his. And that is over, over the short run, um, I think over the next few years, um, I have no idea the way the equity markets are going to treat us, none whatsoever. I don't know if this current run-up in the equity markets is going to continue, if it's going to go back down. Over the long run, you don't have a lot of options, okay? Over the, you, a bet in equities is essentially putting money into the whole U.S. economy, right? Um, if equities are down substantially over the next 30-year period, from today to 30 years from now they're down, we're all in a world of hurt. And, and if that's true, I don't care if you have your money in what you think is the safest bond, U.S. government bond in the whole wide world, we're in a world of hurt. Do you see? Because their ability to pay those bonds, I mean, if you have that kind of negative economic, you know, opposite of growth, right, decline over that period of time, I don't believe in bonds either. So, so given, given that, I still think for long-term money, uh, equity exposure is a good way to go. All this stuff has risks at this point. This really does. Um, so you're just competing one risk against the other. You want to follow up? Follow yeah. Up. yeah but, and we looked at all in, so in, in the 20s or early 30s when the savings were great, went so high. So yeah. What their savings into? And how yeah. <laughs> That's a good, good question. Um, you know what? Let me uh, say no. Okay. Factually, I don't know what the vehicles were. I have some guesses. Um, that would have been the time that the FDR uh, put in place uh, the FDIC for banks. So I imagine a lot of that money was flowing into banks at that, uh, traditional banks at that point. Um, I suspect a lot of it was not flowing into equities. Okay, and what we know is right after World War II, then became the huge consumption boom after World War II. All that equity sort of flowed out of things like banks into the housing market, and the washing machine market. And Sears was a big. You talk about interesting historical Sears more than any other company, and I like Sears. I, I, I really I, I like to go, but they they kind of pioneered the uh, payment plan for things like washing machines, uh, which which just had some downsides, you know. Um, but right after World War II, when the GIs came home, it probably had a lot of upside. You know, people could get build build the the dream the dreams that they fought for, right at that point, and Sears was part of that. So, yes. Gold has recently reached uh, yeah. a new high. Yeah. When that, and I know historically gold has gone up and down like other markets, but yeah. when people pour money into mm -hmm. gold, aren't they really creating a self-fulfilling prophecy that equities in the American economy is going to continue to go down because mm -hmm. they're betting against it? Yeah. Um, so gold, the reason it's, for those of you uh, wouldn't be familiar with that sort of as an investment alternative, typically goes up when uh, people think there's inflation possible in the horizon, right? That's, that's what the underlying driving force for these commodities like gold is that people use it against a hedge as a hedge against inflation. Uh, 
There are other ways to hedge against inflation, like treasury inflation protected securities. Um, I have, well, I don't play those games, right? I mean, I, I don't have any money in, that, in gold whatsoever. Um, I don't view it as, um, as a, uh, well, how, how would I say this? I don't view it as unpatriotic to buy gold, and I think you might a little bit. Basically, you know, uh, it just seems that it is, it is making a statement that you have no faith in the economy that you live in. I think it certainly makes a statement that you believe there are large risks on the horizon for the economy, okay. particularly with associated with inflation, and that that's where you're going to bet your bet. But you know, I do some of that too with other instruments, right? I don't think that's a bad thing to have some of it hedged. Um, I think uh, gold at a thousand dollars. I'd love to take a bet on where that's going to, I don't think that's sustainable, but yeah. There's psychological studies about the utility of uh, present pleasure versus yeah. future pleasure, where you know, if, you're, if you're told to order a snack in five minutes from now, mm -hmm. you pick the chocolate over the fruit, mm -hmm. but a month from now, you yep. order the fruit. Great study. Um, yeah. How does that impact public policy mm -hmm. in terms of we, we tend to consume now because of the utility of it versus saving for a future utility. Yeah, so he's citing a number, a number of studies, which are very good studies. Um, and are you familiar with the baby studies, too, with the marshmallow, those studies? Uh, it turns out that the ability to delay gratification is, uh, appears to be sort of inborn in a lot of people. You know, either you're, you got an ability to do that from an early age or uh, you don't. And that um, they, they've done studies with babies and the ability to wait for a marshmallow that's set in front of them. And if they wait for it, they get a, additional candies as well. Some kids can do it, some kids don't. They track those kids over a long period of time, and guess what? The kids that can wait for the marshmallow do a lot better financially and can delay gratification, lower incidence of teenage sex, things where you would look at delayed gratification as an outcome, right? So, speaking directly to your question, if you believe that this is really very much inborn and widespread and we can't do a lot about it individually. The public policy implications of that are to move more towards a system where the government would be involved in forced savings. Are there, um, are there examples of that big time? You bet. Uh, Singapore would be an outstanding example of what's called the Central Provident Fund, where you are essentially required to save a large portion of your income into a government-run account, and then you can tap into that only for certain types of purchases, like a house purchase and things like that. You can't just take it and buy, you know, concert tickets with it, okay? So that's one model. The U.S. model is kind of on the other extreme. History of the country, we could go on and on about this, right? We have a, we have a libertarian streak that's as long as the history of our country. Let people do what they want with their money. Um, it's a very complicated question to ask, is it a good idea to come towards Singapore? Okay, because um, there's a lot of side, uh, there's a lot of uh, unintended consequences of doing that as well. But if you wanted to solve the savings problem, and that was your only goal, it is very clear that higher levels of forced government savings would do that if you move more towards the Singapore model. It might also reduce things like venture capital and, and, and you know, things that help the economy grow, so there's some real downsides to that. But uh, that could be a rare, very rich public policy debate. Um, other questions? Yes? Do you think that um, it'll take another event 
Um, perhaps because I'm a business professor, okay? I have more faith in the ability of individual business people to help people that work for their business. Um, in other words, I have more faith in enlightened business leaders coming to their company and saying, this is how we're going to change our retirement plan. Here's the things we're going to do to help people save more money. I think that's, the, that's kind of a path I believe in. I, I wish I had more faith in the public policy side. I don't, okay? Um, I think, you know, it's a very broad comment. I think democracies are very good at solving very short-term crises. But these long, lingering crises that get worse over time would just seem to be horrible at addressing. Um, and uh, so that, that's my view. If we, I, hope, I hope this can be ameliorated at least somewhat without the, uh, another uh, Great Depression. I think, uh, realistically, I don't think the U.S. is ever going to become Japan with those le high levels of savings rate, nor would I want us to be. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's very clear I think it needs to, to rise, okay? Um, but, but broadly speaking, you know, I can't predict the future on what it's going to take to make that. And I, I, I sort of deal with the world at a micro level, one business at a time, groups of businesses at a time, and you hope there's some things in the public policy that help that out. You hope, and if you're like me, you doubt a little bit, okay? Um, yes? I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, changing default options, you know, if you have mm -hmm. opt-in and opt-out mm -hmm. stuff. The thing that occurred to me about this paint thing, mm -hmm. we've had that problem in our house, so nothing gets painted. Yeah. But if somebody set it out and said, this is your default option, this is what we're yeah. going to do, unless you choose something else, yeah. I bet we'd have gotten something painted. Okay, uh, basically, uh, her question is, she actually made an observation, okay, and her observation was nothing gets painted at their house owing to her husband's inability to paint, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she has two arms. <laughs> <laughs> this is great, okay. So, uh, uh, in addition to her husband's inability to paint, she thinks there's too many types of paints, and somebody should say, this is the default option for paint. And if you, if you, you can choose this or you can choose something else. And if they had a default option that was semi-reasonable, that thing, more things would get painted because she wouldn't have a decision to make. And, I, and, and you didn't state it, but you were relating that to the financial markets, I imagine. Yeah, lots of stuff, yeah. Yeah, um, that's undoubtedly true. You know, strawberry right. jam in the store. Right. There's actually a paper on picking jam in the store. I didn't just make that up. Okay, yeah, there's a paper on picking strawberry jam in the store, so. Uh, that looks at that. There's too many strawberry jams on the shelf. You don't buy any strawberry jam. Is this the result? Of it. But um, yes, in some companies, there, there's an act uh, that was enacted about a year and a half ago called the P Pension Protection Act that allows companies to set other defaults. Some companies have done that. Some companies haven't. All of these you can opt out of. In other words, if, if they have a default to a life cycle fund, for, all life cycle fund means is think about one-third stocks, one-third bond, one-third cash, but those proportions could be different depending on how old you are at the time that you invest in it, and then it sort of adjusts over time. That's kind of a nice default, right? If you do nothing, they kind of spread it out for you. Um, they all have the ability to let people get out of that, but what do we find? Of course, if you make that the default, more people choose it. Is that probably a better option for a lot of people versus 100% cash? Yes. If you want 100% cash, will they let you do that? Yes. You just have to make an active decision to do that. And so I'm all in favor of that. It's legal, uh, and we just need to get more companies doing it, okay? So that's the bottom line. It's an implementation issue rather than a legal issue at this point, okay? It's not at the top of the list for some companies to do that. 
It doesn't add to profitability directly. Okay, so uh, we need to keep talking to people about it. And I like doing that, so yeah. Well, you talked about the numeracy earlier, yeah. um, and I know, you know when I went through school and didn't see personal finance, you learned it from someone next door. Are there any studies of where youth have been taught specifically mm -hmm. about personal finance mm -hmm. and then the impact subsequently? Uh, some, not a ton. I will tell you, the, let, let me give you the, the kind of uh, bottom line of that research. It can be taught. It appears that women are better at it. When you teach, uh, when you teach financial advice to women, uh, they take it. <laughs> when you teach financial advice to men, they don't stop and ask for directions, right? Because they knew they were going before they started so they couldn't possibly be lost. So they, you know, it, it's just uh, men are more stubborn. Uh, so uh, it, it appears to work. Uh, it appears to work with women. That's actually good news in this sort of terribly morbid sort of way. Um, uh, a lot of women, uh, uh, women outlive men. So they have a lot more of those end life decisions with respect to bulk amounts of money. Um, so um, th that's probably where the inroads need to be made. It's also true women with families are highly motivated and sometimes more motivated than men to protect the nest egg. Okay, so that if you're kind of public policy-wise or business-wise, you're going out and saying, okay, I want to do education on, I want to teach my people. Where do I go? Go to the women first. You're going to have more inroads. Yes? I think the, uh, the recent uh, huge financial problems and the need for stimulus gives any credibility to the so-called black swan effect. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so he's ref referring to a book by Nassim Taleb called Black Swan. Uh, a previous book by him called Fooled by Randomness, kind of some of the same ideas in those two books. I, cer I certainly agree with Taleb's thesis. The thesis of that book being that we get very confident in our ability to measure things like risk, and we're actually overconfident, and all kinds of random events can occur that we really never thought about. Um, that book is maddeningly uh, difficult for a guy like me to read because he just mocks my profession. Uh, and he, he is, uh, and he is so arrogant, it's just off the scale, if you've ever, I mean, it's a, stylistically, it's a tough read, and at the end of the day, someone like me has to say, are, the, do the, are those ideas valid, you know, despite the sort of stylistic issues? And the answer is yes, in my mind, absolutely. Um, we do get, you know, people like uh, me, for example, uh, would, would be trained a lot in mathematics, right? So what happens, and I know this myself. Um, when you get trained in mathematics and analyzing business situations, finance situations with mathematics, you get very confident. You know, I can calculate it out to the fourth decimal point, maybe the fifth decimal point, right? So what? Still wrong. You know, the underlying model was wrong. It didn't take into account the psychology of the investor or history or other things that need to be there but are hard to build in mathematically, right? So we don't because we, we like our models and we are comfortable and we're trained in them. So I think that's absolutely true. And I wish you would write with a little more humility. <laughs> One more question. One more question. I've been given the, we may not have another question actually. Uh, uh, could I go in the back and then, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's like a, it's like a 
Yeah, I am. I like, you know, if, we, if you have access to the subject pool, right, you can actually do it, right? You need to collect data, and data is not always so easy. Now, just to be clear, they're not marshmallow babies. They're, they're, <laughs> they're babies that are... <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but I think uh, teaching people... So, so the thesis of that would be, which I agree with completely, um, if you can teach people uh, delayed gratification when they're very young, that pays huge dividends for them, but financially and probably in lots of other areas as well. What's a little disturbing about those studies is that it's pretty clear there's some innate differences in human beings that may be hardwired. Um, but uh, if you're going to go after, you know, young, right? Young and delayed gratification. So thanks for the comment. And I'm, I'm uh, okay? All right. Thanks, everybody.